Well, that's a, a principle that we, we live by at this church, that the Lord is our light and that he guides us. He doesn't do that in some mysterious, mystical way. The Lord guides us by speaking to us, and the Lord speaks to us by his word. I mean, think about what the scriptures say about themselves. The, the scriptures say that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So if you want to know how the Lord wants you to live, you don't just kind of sit up in the air and ponder it. You look down at his word and put it into action. You prayerfully consider it and you obey it. But the Lord is kind to us in that way, right? Not leaving us to guessing or assuming, but laying out what he desires for his people in his word. I mean, it's incredibly helpful because you wouldn't know what to do if you don't know anything about what the Lord has called you to do. And recently, my, my son started playing soccer. And so I go to the games as a good dad, sit and watch, looking at all the plays. But I have no idea what anyone should be doing. Because, because I know nothing about the sport. And so I don't know if people are behaving rightly or wrongly because I don't know how the game should be played. But that's not how God wants us to live. God wants us to know how to live. And in order to do so, he tells us what a church is. Right? He lays out the blueprint of what this thing is he's called us to and then how we should live in it. And in the book we've been studying in First, First Timothy that's exactly what Paul, the apostle, writing to Timothy, his protege, is doing. Laying out for Timothy how the church should live together. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, he tells Timothy, and by extension us, what this thing is that's the church that then drives how we should live. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible and don't have one, feel free to take the Bible under your chair and use it. All right, 1 Timothy is in the New Testament. The, you might need help finding it. You can look at the table of contents. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, then we encourage you to take that Bible. Right? We're not stingy with God's Word. Take that Bible home as your own. Use it. All right? Love it. Keep it. And, and, and we pray that you would be blessed and edified by it. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this morning we'll only look at three verses. But if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be out of here by, I don't even know what time it is. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Please few verses, verses 14 and 16, are small in number but big in impact. And here's what I think is Paul's point in writing these verses, the main point or main idea of verses 14 through 16. What a church is 
And what a church believes should be displayed in how a church lives. What a church is and what a church believes should be displayed in how a church lives. And this morning, we'll only consider two points. Number one, the character of the church should shape its conduct. Verses 14 and 15. And then secondly, the confession of the church should shape its conduct. We see that in verse 16. So the character of the church should shape its conduct, how it lives. And then the confession of the church, secondly, should shape its conduct. First, the character of the church should shape its conduct. That is, what a church is, its nature, its character, should shape how a church behaves. And we see here that Paul deeply believes that. I mean, here in verses 14 and 15, he pretty much lays out why he wrote this letter. To show these believers how they ought to live together. Uh, He started in the opening verses of chapter 1 warning against the kind of conduct they shouldn't put up with, namely the teaching of the false teachers who who only blew hot air, going on and on about genealogies and myths and using the law incorrectly. And then, starting in chapter 2, Paul positively began giving instructions as to what should characterize the church. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, the church should pray for all people. He goes on later in chapter 2 to to talk about the ways that men and women should worship in church distinctly as men and women, designed so by God. And in the earlier verses of chapter 3, he talks about how the church should be properly led and served with elders and deacons and giving qualifications for both offices. It's not been the random ramblings of an apostle but rather authoritative instructions to guide the people of God. And notice in verse 14 here how Paul would have preferred to deliver these instructions face to face. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. For Paul... Physical presence is preferred over the less personal, more distant form of written communication. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that he urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus to teach the church there while he himself went on to Macedonia. But though distant in space, Timothy and the church at Ephesus are on Paul's mind. He desire to see them, to come to them soon. Does that attitude mark you? A longing to see, to be with other believers, to share life with them and to to shape their lives in greater conformity to God's will? Is that the attitude that you have on Sundays? You have that attitude outside of Sundays. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that for many of us, 
our attitudes are often the total opposite, opposite of Paul's here. We prefer written communication over face-to-face convos. Texting has become our primary way of talking. I'm not bashing texting or technology, right? They're useful. But I wonder if we overvalue the convenience and usefulness of tools like texting and undervalue physical presence. And if we undervalue it because we undervalue the nature of our relationships together. I mean, think if other relationships in our lives lacked a physical element and depended mainly on written communication. If a husband and wife primarily communicated via text, you think something was wrong. If a child and parent only ever slid notes to each other under the door, you wouldn't think that was a healthy relationship. And yet, with other Christians, with other Christians in our churches, we are often too content with there being a certain distance between us. Perhaps we've got an improper perspective of the richness of the relationship we're to have together with other believers. A relationship marked by warmth and wanting to be with each other. Saints, FaceTime and Zoom, right, texting and emailing are wonderful supplements to a vibrant relationship with other members. But don't let them be the sum of your relationship. I love how many of you model getting together with one another throughout the week for lunch or for coffee. Now, keep doing that. Keep giving yourself over to meeting with other brothers and sisters. And keep showing up here to in-person services on Sunday mornings. Don't think that your presence here is pointless. Relationships are built by being together. Paul wanted to see Timothy. But Paul doesn't presume that his desires and plans always come to fruition. Yes, he hoped to see Timothy soon, but he realized that might not happen, that he might be delayed. And yet he still wanted to communicate to him, to the church. And so he writes this letter. And in that, just notice here the sovereignty of God at work. Had Paul been able to immediately see Timothy, he would not have written this letter to instruct the church at Ephesus. And we would not have it to instruct us as a church 2,000 years later. The Lord orchestrates all things for his glory and our good. Even in disappointed plans, we can and should praise God. He knows better than us. And he always knows what he's doing. Again, Paul writes for the express purpose of pointing out how Christians should behave. And notice the reference point to how he talks about Christians. Christians don't just live separate lives on their own. Christians live their lives with other Christians in the church. Paul talks about how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. The New Testament simply has no concept of a Christian who's not a member of a local church. 
The idea of being alone Christian, worshiping God on your own terms, in your own way, out in nature on the mountaintop, or in your apartment, behind the TV, without the confines of organized religion, might sound good to you, might sound convincing to others, but is nowhere found in the Bible. You cannot have Jesus without having Jesus' people. There is an inseparable link between a Christian and the church. You see here in verse 15, how Paul uses three different pictures of the church to highlight its importance and its function and how it shapes how Christians should live. First, Paul calls the church the household of God. That's a striking picture. Even though it's got formal offices, elders and deacons, the church is not simply a cold, formal institution. The church is a family of believers united to our heavenly father by the blood of our big brother, Jesus Christ. It's striking because of our former relationship with God. Like Paul said about himself in chapter 1, formerly we were all once insolent opponents of God. God is not naturally our father, but our foe. Each one of us has rebelled against him and earned his just anger and wrath. Because of our sins, God is opposed to us. But in his love, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to live and die for us. To die the death we deserve to die. He took on our sins and our punishment. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect record. For all of us who turn from our sins and believe in him, in his life for us, and his death for us, we are saved. We are rescued. We are redeemed. But just think of the nature of this redemption. God doesn't turn from being our foe to simply being an acquaintance. He doesn't turn from being against us to being cool with us. You know how we might forgive people, right? At least we say we do. But we still keep them at an arm's length. But not God. He takes us from being castaways to adopting us into his very family. He takes us from being by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind to being children of the all high God. He unites us with the work of his son. And because of the son's obedience, because of the son's sacrifice, we with the son now can call God our father along with other brothers and sisters God has saved through Christ. I mean, don't miss the profoundness of something like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. We often recite it rather quickly and without any kind of reflection. But when the disciples ask Jesus to teach us how to pray, and Jesus starts off, Our Father, it is astonishing He's saying that because of him, everybody united to him, 
will have access to God, not as a distant deity or not simply as a righteous ruler, but as their heavenly father with all the rights and privileges of children, access and fellowship and an eternal inheritance in his kingdom, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. But another of these great privileges is gaining other brothers and sisters in the faith, in this family of faith. And a responsibility then to care for them. And we'll see Paul later in chapter 5 call out some explicit ways that we should care for our brothers and sisters. But, but even here in this picture of the church as the household of God, specific behaviors are implicitly expected. I mean, viewing the church as a family should impact some things. It should impact our affections. These aren't just co-workers to endure for eight hours a day. These are spiritual siblings to love for life. If God loves them at the expense of his son, then we also must love them. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says 10 verses later in that same chapter, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Just notice the explicit familial language used there. Brother, which often in the New Testament simply means brothers and sisters. Love is to be the defining mark of our relationships. So saints, do you view the church as a family to love? I mentioned briefly earlier, if, if we do, it, it should be evidence in our moving towards one another, more deeply longing to be with each other. Now, Paul viewed Timothy as his true child in the faith. Again, familial language. And he wanted to see him, to care for him, to strengthen him. That's what family does. Now, what's this verse have to say to you if you're single? Well, it says that even though you may not have a husband or a wife, you've got a family in Christ. If you are married but don't have children, well, it says that you are not necessarily lacking anything. There are other younger believers here that you can take under your wing as spiritual children. And even the children of other members here are, in essence, in a real way, yours to take on and to have a role in caring for. We say in our church covenant, we pledge that we will endeavor to raise up such as may at any time be under our care. My kids are your kids. Yours are mine. They get to go home with you, all right, at the end of the day. But while they're here, right, we're going to care for each other. All right? So, so, so that should mean, right, if you're a member of this church, we don't just let our teenagers or young ones just kind of wander around where, in their own little spaces without us engaging them. We want to see them know Christ and grow in Christ, and it's our job to help them in that way. I mean, you've heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. 
Well, even more accurate, I think, it takes a church, the family of God, to raise a child. What does this verse have to say to those of us who grew up fatherless or motherless? Or who even now are fatherless or motherless? Perhaps through death or abandonment. You know, in our congregation, in our community, there's a lot of pain present from a missing parent. And yet David can say confidently in Psalm chapter 27, verse 10, when my father and my mother have forsaken me, then the Lord will take me in. Don't think of that as some mystical thing. The Lord taking you in is the Lord providing you what you need. What does he provide you? A family. Blair Lynn, in her book about how the gospel heals the pain of fatherlessness, writes, many of us who are fatherless have been so used to figuring life out on our own, living in isolation. But in the church, God says, here is a family to walk with you and to help you along. How should one act in this family, this household of God? Walk with other brothers and sisters and help them along. Have you considered that that's what this church is here to do for you? Are you allowing your family here to care for you? Or are you shutting yourself off from their care? Have you considered that that's what you're here to do for others, to serve as family for them. So do you get frustrated when people ask, can they hang with you? Can they come over? Can they spend time with you? How might you need to open your calendar and your time and your heart and your home for them? Have you considered that the Lord is calling you to be the family that so many have lacked? You know, we live in a day where we're tempted to highlight our differences and either fight against or fence off ourselves from one another. We're told to view other believers in our churches primarily through the lens of their ethnicity or their political views, who they voted for or whether they homeschool, whether they mask up or not whether they're vaccinated or not, and to keep them at a distance based on where they fall on those things. Some pastors and podcasts, ministers and ministries are fueling that sort of thing, calling you to be suspicious of your pastors and the people in your church if you're not aligned with them on every topic, or rather if they're not aligned with what they say. Chris, wrote to me this week about this passage, and Chris said, you know, some people view themselves as sanctified police out to investigate and judge other believers rather than seeing them as Paul sees them here, as brothers and sisters to support you and for you to support them. 
Paul writes to instruct the church how they ought to, to walk, to live, to be ordered, to help one another. And this picture of the church as a family is meant to motivate and fuel that. Perhaps growing up, you, you heard a parent or a grandparent constantly remind you of your household duties. Look out for your brothers and sisters. Take care of one another. You're representing this family. Friends, if that's true of our physical families, how much more should it be true of God's family? How we live as Christians should be evidence that God is our Father and has put us with other brothers and sisters whom we love and support. How we live should also reflect the reality that we belong to God, are His family, and that He lives in us. Notice the next picture that Paul gives is of the church as the church of the living God. Yes, this is a family, but it is a family where the Father is fully present, living and active. In the Old Testament, the idea that God was a living God was highlighted to to mark his difference from the lifeless, deaf, and dumb idols of the nations around Israel. In contrast to their gods, the God of Israel was the true and living God. He, like no other supposed gods, had life in himself and so can give life to whom he chooses. This self-existent, living God took up residence in the midst of his people and lived among them. His presence was represented in the tabernacle and later the temple and the most holy place. Well, in the New Testament, that idea is repeated and deepened as this living God again dwells with his people in their midst, but no longer in a place. This living God lives in his people by his spirit. We are the temple of God the collective people in whom God dwells. If you want to see clear evidence that God is alive, look at his gathered people. Did you come this morning, get dressed, ride on the car with that understanding? That you weren't coming to just check off your Sunday duty? That you weren't coming to a mere social event? But you were coming to a gathering where the living God would be distinctly manifest. And just notice here how different Paul and by extension God, as Paul is simply writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how different they think about the church from us. I mean, so often we think that what makes the church alive is a banging worship band. What animates the church is an electrifying preacher. What makes the church vibrant is a modern building with modern decor and with big screens and flashing lights. But for Paul, you can have all those things and be nothing but a designer building filled with dead bodies. What makes a church, a real church, alive 
is the presence of the almighty living God living among his people. And his living presence is evidence. Not by how good the music is or how great the message was or how grand the meeting place is, but how godly the members are. Do they behave, conduct themselves according to God's word? Does God's word order how they're structured, how they live, how they relate to one another? Do they act as if they're the church of the living God? You know how it is when your parents ain't home. Or when your boss is on leave. When your teacher is out sick. Your behavior changes. But in the church that belongs to the living God, who is always present and never absent, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, who's never on sick leave, who never needs a break, and who never turns his back, when you live before him, or better, when he lives among you and has given you instructions how to live, it should then shape how you live together. We live to honor him and to reflect his holy life through our holy lives together. As I pray that in your time here, that You're encouraged, even as you see people come and go, that you don't allow the the empty seats or empty parking spaces to discourage you. I hope you're not discouraged by who's not here, but rather I pray you're encouraged and enlivened by who is here among us right now, the living God. And I pray that our lives would increasingly reflect that reality that he lives among and in us. The last image that Paul portrays of the church to guide its behavior is the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. These are architectural terms. The pillar and buttress or foundation of a building are what hold the building up. Well, here Paul says the church has the function of holding the truth up. God has entrusted the truth of his word to his church to hold it firm and not let it decay or crumble under the decay of false teaching. To hold it high and not let it fall in the midst of a sinful and corrupt culture. But to hold the truth up firm, stable, steadfast, unashamedly. The church is to proclaim and protect God's word. And its members are to live united in that mission. I mean, you see here how this last picture of the church dispels some of the the false ideas we sometimes have. Declaring the truth and defending the truth are not solely the pastor's job or the deacon's roles. But every member is tasked with fulfilling this calling. As the church is not made up only of people in official offices, but all the members. The members are the church. And the church is the pillar of truth. So think of how you serve that function as a member of this local body. You support the the church and its mission to proclaim and protect God's word by your giving. 
part of which pays my salary to set me apart to study God's word and to declare it to you. In doing that, you are showing how much you value the truth. You are upholding it. You demonstrate an understanding of the church's function to uphold the truth by your personal study of God's word. Reading the Bible and studying the Bible on your own to ensure that what me or anyone else who stands behind this pulpit says or preaches is the truth. Remember, Paul wrote to the entire church in Galatia, not to the false teachers, but to the entire church for putting up with false teachers. You've got to know the truth to detect falsehood. And so in your study of God's word, you're doing that. And we serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth when we sometimes have to practice church discipline on a member who's not living according to the truth, who's acting like God's word is a lie by saying they're Christian, but not living like one, not gathering with the flock, not fleeing sin and temptation, living more by the world's standards than the word's. We practice church discipline in such cases, not out of a desire to shame or punish someone, but to preserve the integrity of God's word and his church, which is supposed to hold up and live by his word and to call others back to submitting to it. God has given us his word to be faithful stewards of it, to serve as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And for us to fulfill such a high calling, members can't be living a lie. What the church is, the family of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth should all shape how the church lives. The character of the church should shape the conduct of the church. But there's a second point that Paul makes in this passage. That the confession of the church should shape its conduct. Point number two, the confession of the church should shape its conduct. That is, what a church says it believes should be displayed in how it lives. Paul just ended up in verse 15 talking about the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. And it's as if the, the mere mention of the truth causes Paul then to flesh out what specific truth he has in mind that the church must uphold. The truth about Jesus, the gospel. What many believe we have here in verse 16 is part of a hymn or a creed exalting Christ that the early church used. I mean, you can see even in its format, it, it seems to fit that purpose. And Paul reminds Timothy and the church, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, you remember last week we, we mentioned that when Paul uses mystery, he's talking about the, the plan of salvation that was once concealed, but now revealed in the person of Christ. And this message of Christ, Paul says here, is tied to a godly life, to godliness. So just as Paul stressed in verse 15 that the church behave a certain way to display, uh, to display what it is, Right, so even here, he says, he argues that the church must behave a certain way, live a godly life based on the content of what it believes. That is, in Paul's mind, the gospel is not simply something to be believed, but that belief must be fleshed out in life. 
Yes, meditate on the gospel. But that meditation should move from the head to the heart. From intellectual assent to heartfelt worship. And then from the heart to the hands. To living like you worship a glorious Christ. It's what we see in other places. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts catching Peter being a hypocrite. And how he confronted him to his face. But he didn't confront Peter because he didn't know the gospel. But because he says his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. If you believe these glorious things, the the glorious things of the gospel that that he's about to, to, to point out, then it should be reflected in the church's practice. It's interesting here that Paul introduces this seemingly common creed by affirming, great indeed is this confession. Remember again who he's writing to, Timothy and the church in Ephesus. And what's noteworthy about that is in the book of Acts, in Acts 19, we, we read of Paul's previous missionary journey in Ephesus. As he proclaimed the gospel, the Lord bore fruit and many people were converted. But it caused an issue because as people turned to the Lord, the true and living God, they turned away from worshiping idols. That's what true conversion always requires. And we we read in Acts 19 that a certain idol maker who crafted silver idols of the Ephesian goddess Artemis was upset. He gathered all the craftsmen in town and declared that Paul was causing them to lose money and said that Paul was bringing disrepute upon the temple of the great goddess Artemis. We read of all the craftsmen, and soon the entire city were enraged. And in response to Paul's ministry, proclaiming Christ to be supreme, the people collectively shouted in verses 28 and 34, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It seems to have been a standard creed in Ephesus. Well, here, sometime later, Paul writes back to Timothy in Ephesus. And in essence says, the Ephesians might have their little confession. Great is Artemis. But let me tell you who's really great. King Jesus. Great is Indeed, we confess, is the mystery, the message about him. Every culture has its counterfeit gods that they worship. And our job as Christians is not to learn every single nuance about them and refute them. Our job is to hold to and hold up a better picture, a superior alternative. Let me show you how far greater our God is than your supposed gods. And Paul proceeds with talking about his favorite subject matter, Jesus Christ. His name is not mentioned, but it's it's clear that that this confession is about him, the Son of God, and about what he's done. He, Paul says, was manifested in the flesh, revealed in the flesh. Which means that his existence wasn't tied to his humanity. He existed from all eternity. 
John 1, 1 says he was in the beginning with God and he was God. But then in John 1, 14, that he became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. He took on a human body and entered into time and space as a man. The Son of God took on toes and walked the path of obedience to his heavenly Father. He lived the godly life that you and I were made to live but failed to. He lived 33 years of sinless perfection. You want to see what true godliness looks like? Look at the living God living as a man. But in looking at God manifested in the flesh, I think Paul wants us not to simply look at his living, but to look at his dying. Yes, God dwelt among us, but he also died among us. And not by natural causes. Jesus laid down his life. He gave his body as a sacrifice for us. He gave himself over to be punished for our rebellion against God. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The Son of God who lived a sinless life for us took our sins in his body and died for us that we might die to sin and live for him. But Jesus didn't stay dead. The next lines in the creed say he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Jesus died and was buried and in a tomb for three days. His claims that he was the Son of God, the Messiah who'd come to rescue his people, seemed as false as every other supposed Savior. His promise that if you tear down the temple of his body, that he'd raise it up again, look to be broken. Friday, Jerusalem was in a frenzy as Jesus was killed and buried. Saturday, the city was quiet as Jesus' lifeless body lay stiff behind a rock. But on the first day of the week, on the third day, the rock was removed and the Son of Man walked out. His claims were vindicated. And how does the Holy Spirit play into it? Well, Christ was resurrected by the Spirit's power. Amen. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. It tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And being raised victorious from the grave, Jesus was vindicated as being the Son of God, indeed being Lord and Savior. His sacrifice for sins was sufficient. His payment for us was accepted by God, and his resurrection was proof of payment. The angels first saw him when he walked out of the tomb, and they announced to the would-be wailing women who went to visit him at the tomb, he is not here. He is risen. An announcement 
that has gone from the lips of angels to the lips of men. Jesus is the Son of God who became a man and who lived for us and who died for us, but he is risen and calls us all now to repent from our sins and turn to him. He has been, the next lines exclaim, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. From a small group of Jews in Jerusalem, the message of Jesus has spread to the far ends of the world. And as the message spreads, so does the Messiah's reign as well. As people believe and bow their hearts to King Jesus in obedience and faith. And where is Jesus now? The last line of the, heed, uh, the hymn or creed tells us, in glory. He's been taken up, ascended on high to his heavenly throne. His humiliation, emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being formed, found in the likeness of men, and not only that, but further humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross has led to his exaltation. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, great indeed, we confess. Is this mystery? The unfolding plan of God in the person of Jesus Christ to save sinners like us. Look at Jesus, the supreme manifestation of godliness. Look at what he's done for us. Cherish and treasure Christ. And in doing so, live like you do. You see how Paul means to motivate behavior change here? And Paul could easily in this book just have given a dry step-by-step -step instruction manual. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do that. He could have easily just stated his purpose in this section by saying, I'm writing this letter because I want you to know how to behave. But Paul doesn't want behaviors to change, a conduct to be driven by surface level commands. I mean, you can get people to do stuff that way, but it won't last often. Paul wants to fuel proper conduct by reminding the church who we are and who our head is. You are the family of God. You are the dwelling place of the living God. You are the pillar of truth. What truth? The glorious truth about King Jesus. In other words, you are not your own, but have been brought with a price. So then, how should you live? Glorify God with your bodies and with all of your being in your lives together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that not only tells us how we should live, but drives us through gospel motivations to live that way. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ lived for us, gave himself for us, died for us to purchase for himself a people. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to live as your people, to love one another, to, to stand firm on the word of truth, Lord, to proclaim and protect the word of truth, Lord, and, Lord, to care for each other. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.